The thing about tough medicine, it's hard getting it down. People don't like to take it. Welcome to Politicology. I'm Ron Steslow. And this is our weekly roundup, where we invite a rotating panel of experts to discuss the truth you need to know behind the most important stories of the week and how they're shaping the political landscape. On today's outstanding panel, returning to the roundup is Matt Bennett. Matt is a co-founder of Third Way and executive vice president for public affairs. He earned his JD from UVA Law. He's a veteran of both of Bill Clinton's presidential campaigns and served in the Clinton White House as deputy assistant to the president for intergovernmental affairs. Matt, as always, great to have you on the show. Welcome back. Thank you for having me. Great to be here. And making her roundup debut is Beth Fukumoto. Beth served three terms in the Hawaii House of Representatives, where she became the youngest woman in the U.S. to lead a major party in a legislature. She's been recognized as one of the Washington Post's 40 Under 40 rising political stars, business insiders, eight of the most influential millennial women in U.S. politics, and one of the 100 future leaders, the world's most influential young people in government by Apolitical. She currently works as a political commentator, consultant, and teaches leadership and ethics at the Harvard Kennedy School of Government, and she writes a weekly column for the Honolulu Civil Beat. Beth, welcome back to Politicology. It's great to have you here. Thank you. Thank you. It's nice to be here. On this week's Roundup, first we'll discuss the Fed's most recent rate hike in the midst of turmoil for the banking system, how it's going to impact consumers and what that could mean for our politics. Next up, we'll discuss the Biden administration's crackdown on fentanyl at the U.S.-Mexico border. And then we'll dive into the media campaign to turn the public against military support for Ukraine, led by one of the very liberal founders of Ben & Jerry's. Finally, for our Politicology Plus subscribers, we're going to discuss the Trump allies buying up property around the Capitol to build a MAGA campus. To get ad-free access to the show, plus a catalog of additional episodes like the Politicology Plus conversation we're going to have today, click the link in our show notes for politicology.com slash plus or navigate to the Politicology Show in the Apple Podcast app and tap the button there that says try free. We'll dive in right after this. Okay. On Wednesday, the Federal Reserve raised interest rates by another quarter of a percentage point. It's continuing to raise rates to combat inflation, despite the fact that rate hikes are catalyzing instability in the banking system. And that brings the base policy rate to somewhere between 4.75 and 5%. Financial markets were expecting the move. Uh, This comes less than two weeks after the collapse of Silicon Valley Bank and Signature Bank, which set off warning bells in the banking industry. The Fed also put out a statement saying the banking system is strong and resilient after their two-day meeting. Quote, recent developments are likely to result in tighter credit conditions for households and businesses to weigh on economic activity, hiring, and inflation, the statement read. The extent of these effects is uncertain. So this is one of the big concerns about increasing rates. People who have been saving benefit from higher yields, while people who are borrowing money have to pay more to continue borrowing that money. Credit card rates are tightly linked to the Fed's actions, so people with revolving credit card debt can expect to see their rates rise, usually within a billing cycle or two. The average credit card rate was about 20% in January, according to bankrate.com. And car loans tend to follow the five-year treasury note, which is influenced by the same Fed key rate. 
and it's going to impact new federal student loans as well. Loans that got dispersed after July 2022 are paying about 5% interest compared to 3.73% for loans dispersed the year prior. Uh, On the flip side, people who are saving money will have an easier time getting better returns on the money that they have saved. So the increase in the Fed's key rate often leads to banks paying more interest on their deposits. Now, we talked about the collapse of these two banks last week, the banking crisis, what caused it. We had a subject matter expert on to discuss that. But this week, I want to talk about how this is hitting consumers and what that's going to do to our politics, what it could do to our politics. And there's a lot we don't know about how the rate hike is going to impact the banking system. But these consumer issues are here and now, and they're likely to hit home very quickly. So, Matt, I want to start with you. Um, How do you think this rise in interest rates for things like credit cards and car loans shape the political conversation and the landscape? Well, I think in the near term, it's definitely going to be bad for Biden and for the Democrats because we're in power. The thing about tough medicine is that it is really it's hard getting it down. People don't like to take it. It it feels bad in the moment. Um, and the idea is that it's going to fix systemically something over time. That's how medicine works. And this is financial medicine intended to tame inflation. So I do think the Fed needs to keep doing this. You've got to keep taking your medicine. But uh, in the moment, it is going to be painful. As you pointed out, it's going to be really tough on borrowers. Um, and nobody, we got addicted, uh, at least politically, to zero interest rates coming from the Fed. And when you have no inflation, as we had for decades, zero interest rates are great. Everybody loves that, you know, with the small exception, as you noted, of the the people who have money in savings accounts, almost everybody else benefits from really low interest rates. But when inflation came roaring back, the Fed needed to do something. So I think in the end, this will benefit Democrats because I think inflation will come down in it by next year. But I think in the near term, it's going to be rough. One of the key pieces of this that jumped out at me is that it has the potential to really exacerbate the wealth gap. And I say that because people who are in a position to save money right now uh, are obviously going to get better, better gains. Um, and we should note that if you have money to save right now, there's a very low chance that you're actually putting it in a bank's in a savings account at a bank because there's really no material return there. You're putting it into other assets like stocks. Uh, while people who are already tapped out are going to need to spend more money just paying interest rates. Um, and during Biden's State of the Union, Beth, he made a very obvious effort to talk to working class voters who felt like they were forgotten and to tell them that he sees them. Uh, I thought it was a really important part of the speech. And now I wonder how effective can that be when there's still this high inflation and increasing interest rates? And I should note, uh, you know, yes, we can also talk about um, whether or not the rollback of some of the regulations in 2018 that a lot of people have been talking about now, pinning this on Trump, that's a fair conversation to have. But we at least 15, I counted, Senate Democrats voted for that rollback. So this really isn't a, you know, just a thing that Trump did and we should put it back. Like this was a very bipartisan uh, effort at the time. So I lay that at your feet and I'd, I'd love to know how you're thinking about, especially working class voters. You know, I think this whole conversation is often really difficult for working class voters. I mean, I'm, I come from a working class family and 
we don't usually sit around the table talking about how much, you know, our credit card interest rate has gone up. And we all know that it's way too high already. It's going to keep being way too high and it's going to take forever to pay off the interest. And that's the most that most people I know could tell you about their credit card debt. Um, but but what they can talk about is how much an egg costs. You know, um, you get I got stopped in Walmart in January and somebody grabbed me and said, oh, how much is that dozen of eggs? And I said, oh, I think it's about $7. And she goes, that's a great price. Oh, my goodness. And she ran and picked up like two because it was the best we'd find in Hawaii that whole time we were there. Every, everywhere else was like 10. So I think those are the conversations around expenses and the economy and costs that that working people are having. And as a result, I think that the Biden administration taking action and taking firm action, as Mao was saying, that hard action is probably beneficial because the narrative that will come out of that is that he's working to tackle it, even though it's hard. And we know that voters don't tend to trust Democrats with their money as much as Republicans, um, particularly centrist voters, tend to think that Republicans are better with it. And a lot of that is because they believe that Republicans can be firm on these things and Democrats tend to be a little bit too loose and, and kind about how they want to use money. So I think that Biden's approach here could actually be helpful for him in the long run. You know, revolving credit card debt, uh, it's important to note, is on the rise as well. Um, and we'd be remiss if we didn't if we didn't discuss how that impacts uh, voters. There's a report out from the Federal Reserve Bank of New York that credit card balances of Americans hit 986 billion dollars in the last three months of 2022. That's up from 770 billion in the first quarter of 2021. Now the revolving debt that is on these credit cards uh, it breaks down along racial lines like this. 72% of black cardholders have revolving credit card debt. 63% of Hispanic cardholders have, have revolving credit card debt. And 42% of white cardholders carry a balance on the cards from month to month. This is the revolving debt that you're not paying off on a monthly basis that continues to accrue those very high interest fees. People with less than a college degree are also more likely to carry over a balance on their, on their credit cards. 35% of cardholders with a college degree or more 56% with some college and 57% with a high school uh, diploma or GED or no high school diploma or at all carry these revolving balances. So Matt, just one more last thoughts on this, um, uh, how, how it's likely to impact voters of color and less educated voters. Uh, and how do you expect that, if at all, to shape the political dynamic as we move toward 2024? I know it's early. It's early 2023. We're a long way off from the presidential election. Um, but it's also unclear whether or how fast this is going to go away. Right. And as you noted, this is a big piece of the wealth gap in this country, which is racial and it is um, education attainment oriented. So non-college voters have enormous debt, uh, have very little wealth, uh, regardless of race. It is worse for people of color, but it is bad for uh white people without college degrees as well. And I think what you're seeing, it, some of this is the end of that pandemic era support that was helping a lot of people get by. Uh, that's going away. A lot of states are taking away Medicaid expansion. So some of this is uh, medical debt that's going on to credit cards. A lot of it is food. Uh, so this is going to hit hard for, for the most vulnerable people in the country, and it's going to sour them further on the state of the economy. However, um, if inflation comes down, 
um, as I hope and expect that it will in the next year or so. And it's you know easy for me to say I live in relative comfort, uh, but if it does come down, I think it's going to make it uh, somewhat easier on these folks. But um, there's no doubt there's pain out there. Yeah. And to that point, we should note that some uh, Wall Street watchers and Fed watchers are speculating that uh, even toward the end of this year, the Fed might have no choice but to start easing again and start lowering rates because of the impact in the banking sector. So it's, it's an important thing to watch. On Tuesday, the Department of Homeland Security announced it's stepping up efforts to combat fentanyl trafficking across the southern border. They've launched a new multi-agency operation called Operation Blue Lotus that is about a week old now. And in that week, they have seized more than 900 pounds of fentanyl, 700 pounds of methamphetamines, and 100 pounds of cocaine. This operation uh, has also led to 18 seizures with 16 federal arrests and two state arrests. For comparison, uh, U.S. authorities confiscated more than 14,000 pounds of fentanyl crossing the border last year, which was a record. Uh, more than 107,000 Americans died of drug overdoses in 2021, which is the most recent data we have available. More than two-thirds of those deaths were caused by fentanyl, according to data from the CDC. Homeland Security Secretary Alejandro Mayorkas announced the program during a visit to a port of entry on the Arizona border alongside Governor Katie Hobbs. Now, fentanyl is pretty hard to detect. Traffickers stuff it into hidden compartments in vehicles. They hide them in loads of produce. Uh, and they duct tape the drugs to the torsos of pedestrians or, and bus passengers. Mayorkas touted the program's smart border security and the use of new scanning machines that will allow agents to increase the number of commercial vehicles screened to increase about tenfold. Now, this was one of the promises from Biden's State of the Union address. Uh, he proposed uh, his new proposed budget also includes $305 million in funding for new scanners. Even with the new technology, fentanyl is still hard to detect. Uh, it's also very cheap to manufacture, so the traffickers can still turn a profit when a lot of their supplies are seized. Uh, now, there's been a lot of talk, uh, Beth, about Joe Biden's move toward the middle. His his line in the secretary in the in the State of the Union about funding the police. Um, his pledge to sign the repeal of DC's new criminal code going down to the border earlier this year. And now we have this increase in fentanyl seizures, which is something that the, the Republicans are talking a lot about. How do you think these moves uh, are positioning Biden as he's gearing up for a re-election announcement? Yeah, I think, you know, especially with Asians, we know with Asian voters in particular, um, Asian voters are particularly concerned that Biden and the Democrats in general have not paid enough attention to crime. And while this is not like a completely direct correlation, I think it does show that he is trying um, to, to make some shift and some compensation for the fact that they feel more fear um, than Biden's typical voting bases. And, and Biden has not secured the Asian vote. Democrats have not secured the Asian vote. When you look at different um, polling measures, most of, most Asians will say, yeah, I voted Democratic, but I really didn't like Trump. That's not a really strong affirmation of the Democratic Party. Now, I do think that, that Asian voters, most Asian voters, there are obviously, you know, like with the Latinx community, there are a bunch of different pockets of voters. But the majority of Asian voters um, are concerned um, about crime 
they have seen an uptick in crimes against themselves, their families, their communities, and they feel like Democrats aren't listening. So I think that as we move into the 2024 election, it is really good for Biden to start paying attention to that. Where I get worried is when the language starts to sound very similar to like Trumpian language, <laughs> when they start focusing on, oh, yeah, well, we, it's because Mexico keeps making these drugs and because China keeps importing the, 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 the pieces for the drugs. And it, I think we need to also make sure that as Democrats, we're being careful about not adopting all the same language just to win. Um, and so we can pay attention to this problem, but also change the way we talk about it. Matt, same question to you, and I'll, and I'll just add on that last week we talked about Ron DeSantis's claim that support for Ukraine wasn't of vital national interest, and he pointed directly to the smuggling of narcotics across the border as a specific concern that was more important to him. So how do you think this move um, you know, by the Biden administration cuts against that narrative? Well, I think DeSantis, if he's serious about running for president, will have to discover that you have to be able to walk and chew gum. And the southern border has absolutely nothing whatsoever to do with the war in Ukraine. Those things, it's like a fish and a bicycle. So I don't know what he's talking about. But but there's no question, uh, I certainly agree, that crime is a serious problem that Democrats have to take very seriously. And we've talked about this before. And, and um, I think Biden is demonstrating pretty good behavior on this. And Democrats have done a better job in recent years than they, than they did. On the southern border, uh, there's a bunch of things going on here. First of all, uh, Biden is making an effort to bring more enforcement to the southern border. Uh, the Mayorkas announcement was just a piece of it, uh, not only to stop the smuggling of drugs, but also uh, the smuggling of humans and the and the uh, the tide of people that are coming across. We need a more orderly process uh, for humanitarian reasons and just to make sure that we are in control of the southern border. Democrats have got to to acknowledge that we have to have strong border security. And one of the problems that we've had is the, some of the loudest voices in our party just don't believe that. Um, and we have to push back on that very forcefully. That said, I certainly agree, we can't sound or act at all like Trump. I mean, they, they were barbaric. They were separating infants from their mothers. I mean, we're not, we're not in the same ballpark as them, but we do need to, to make sure that we're bringing resources. Um, you know, the left uh, several years ago tanked a deal that was on the table that would have that would have allowed dreamers to be protected. And they're currently not um, and would have uh, created a path to citizenship in exchange for more money for border enforcement. That is insane that it was insane to tank that deal. That was a great deal because we do need more border enforcement and we need those other things as well. So the immigration issue has been uh, so massively politicized that it's possible a deal isn't available. The, but the, the heartbreaking thing is the obvious contours of a deal are right in front of us. Can I just ask you both, while we're on the topic of immigration, I, I, I totally agree, um, Matt. My question is, you know, for, for, especially for listeners who aren't following, you know, policy developments as closely as we do in DC, um, a, how hopeful are you that we will get even close to comprehensive immigration reform uh, under, you know, under Biden's presidency? And is there is do you think uh, let's just we're, we exist in fantasy land right now. Do you think that there's a uh, a deal that could get done 
um, that would include something like strong border protection and immigration reform uh, that doesn't cripple the U.S. economy because we know that we rely on labor from immigrants? Do I think there's something that's going to get done? I don't know. I will say um, when we put those two things together, I mean, as you were talking about, I was just thinking, you know, I intellectually completely agree. And that's where my politics would lie. I, I agree with you. Uh, as somebody who is regularly not considered somebody that is from the United States, <laughs> when I travel some of those um, areas in the country um, and people want to speak to me in Spanish and people look at me suspiciously and people you know, at borders want to stop me and question me harder than they would other people. Um, I, the minute I hear increased border security, my, my gut reaction is to freak out and be like, no, I, I don't want any money spent on that. But intellectually, I completely understand what you're saying. And that is absolutely what we need because it's much more than that, right? Like it, it's, it's everything you're saying about public safety, it's drugs coming into the country. It's all of that. But the thing that we need to overcome in order to get to that that compromise that you're talking about, Ron, is that we have to overcome those immediate emotional gut reactions um, that many people are having. And a lot of times I do think that's why the, the Democratic left is so quick to be like, no, absolutely not. No more money for law enforcement. Um, and I, I don't know how we're going to tackle it yet, but I think we have to. Matt? Yeah, I think that's an incredibly important point that she makes, that Beth makes, because um, it's immigration is an emotional issue. If it were an intellectual issue, we would have dealt with it uh, because we, again, we understand what the contours of the deal should be, uh, but it is deeply emotional. It is emotional uh, for Beth and for millions uh, who feel uh, victimized by by anti by nativism, uh, my dad wrote a book about nativism. He's an American historian. It's been with us always. It comes and goes. It is here at the moment, and it is bad. So I certainly get that response. And then there's an emotional response on the other side, which may be harder for the three of us to connect with, but it's real. Which is, you know, this we're losing our country emotional response, and we can't ignore that because millions of people feel it. And so I. The answer to your question, I'm afraid, Ron, is no, I don't see a path uh, to an immigration deal, particularly with the Repub these Republicans in control of the House. I think if Biden wins again and if Democrats get the House back, there are plenty of rational actors in the Senate and a deal is possible, hard, but possible. But at the moment, I don't think so. Earlier this week, the Daily Beast reported that Ben & Jerry's founder, Ben Cohen, is funding a media campaign against U.S. military support for Ukraine. The group, which is called the Eisenhower Media Network, has been reaching out to reporters to push claims that the U.S. is spending too much money trying to help Ukraine defend itself from Russia's invasion. Now, EMN is run by the People's Power Initiative. Cohen is the president and major backer of People's Power. Cohen told the Daily Beast, quote, I think the U.S. should use its power to negotiate an end to the war, not prolong the death and destruction by supplying more weapons, end quote. Now, this, this, this group in particular, EMN, is promoting a group of U.S. military veterans as experts and pundits willing to talk about the war in Ukraine. Some are parroting Kremlin propaganda like the U.S. gave Russia just cause to invade Ukraine because we wouldn't declare that Ukraine would never be allowed into NATO. 
They've also claimed that the funding for Ukraine was so high that it could cause the U.S. government to fail in its duty to pay salaries of military members and to cut Social Security and pension checks. EMN's director, Dennis Fritz, told the Daily Beast that Ukraine cannot win this war. Quote, Ukraine cannot win this war. The bottom line is, it's done. They are against a madman and his ego. He will not lose. Whether we like it or not, we have to give Putin something. End quote. He also said that he favors China's approach to foreign policy and said Americans have to stop being arrogant. <laughs> Fritz, Fritz rose to be commander, uh, command chief master sergeant in the United States Air Force after nearly 50 years in the armed services uh, before taking the helmet EMN. So we've seen a lot of people using Kremlin talking points over the last year. We've talked a lot about the war in Ukraine on this show. Mike Madrid and I spent some time in Ukraine right after the war broke out. But in this case, it's coming from retired members of the military who are part of an organization named after one of the most well-known military leaders in American history. And so I, you know, I was actually, Matt, surprised that this group existed uh, on the left and that it seemed so um, buttoned up for, you know, for, for, for such a group. Their, their image seems very, uh, very formal, very serious. Um, and we've talked a lot of, about this on the show about what Molly McHugh describes as a pincer of isolationism, and we've talked a lot about um, the right and the and the the rhetoric on the right uh, opposing um, intervention and and aid for Ukraine. But on the left, there's a, there's a different kind of sentiment of isolationism, which is that it's not our it's it, it would be arrogant for us to intervene. And so I wonder uh, how how you think this will change the way people look at these messages. Um, how, how big the anti-Ukraine sentiment actually is, uh, on the left, um, how, how successful this, this, um, this effort is going to be, how do you view this? Well, uh, first of all, I view these people as what the Soviets used to call useful idiots. I mean, they are parroting Russian propaganda, not understanding what they're talking about. None, none of what they're saying makes any sense at all. So let's just start with the name of their organization. They're named after Eisenhower. Um, and that is because when he left office, his farewell address was to warn about the military industrial complex. He was very worried that um, the, the Air Force in particular and, and missile technology was going to become ruinously expensive and line the pockets of a lot of people um, and drive uh, you know, an arms race. He was right about all of that, but that has nothing to do with the Ukraine war. That is a completely different thing. Eisenhower also ordered, uh, you know, tens of thousands of soldiers to uh, attack the beaches at Normandy on D-Day. I mean, this was not a guy that was afraid to use military force uh, when it was necessary. And in this case, it is absolutely necessary. I don't think this is going to gain a lot of traction on the left, it will among the very noisy precincts of the left that tend to occupy Twitter. Uh, but I, I don't see this catching on the way it has on the right. I mean, you won't see major personalities on MSNBC doing what Tucker Carlson is doing, which is parroting uh, Putin's talking points. So I'm a little more sanguine about our side than theirs. Yeah, yeah, I am too. And like I said, I, w I was I was actually surprised to see it on the right. It's very clear uh, and very loud, and and on the left, it exists, but I hadn't ever seen it sort of formalized and codified in an organization like this. So, um, so so I, I take your points. Um, 
Beth, how how do you view this? You know, there's there's the extreme right wing stance in Ukraine, which we've talked about. We we have problems here that we need to fix first. We saw that last week from Ron DeSantis. Can you make the case for why it's important for Democrats to push back against the extremist wing within the Democratic Party, even when it's hard? Yeah, I I I feel like there may be two different questions there. So so yes, I absolutely one hundred percent can make that case um, because if you just look at the Republican Party, you cannot let um, people hold you hostage um, by saying we'll blow this whole thing up if you don't do what we do. Because eventually, like you, you can never get you can't put it back in the bag ever. The Republican Party taught us that Democrats should actually absolutely remember. Um, but as far as Ukraine is concerned, I have to say I'm a little surprised this hasn't come out sooner. Um, I'm surprised that you know we went through the whole. Um, Clinton versus Sanders race with a lot of talk about the military industrial complex and a lot of talk about how much um, Democrats have been complicit in spending and building up these major organizations that are going and, you know, creating regime change wars, right? That's the, that was the phrase. Um, And I think the problem that we're having now is that one, I am surprised it hasn't come out sooner. I think more people are not jumping on board because, yeah, they absolutely would be struck down and be a real career killer for a lot of people if they jumped on board and and brought those talking points back up again. Um, but I also think that part of the problem is that because of Iraq and other military decisions we've made, perhaps um, as Americans, it's become a little bit harder for us to tell what are the right wars and what are the wrong ones. And I think if we could better talk about that and better understand that. I absolutely agree with Matt that this is a war that we need to be in. These are This is different than other wars that we have been in before. It is not the same, but we have sold the American public on um, our role as a global superpower to police everyone. And it's hard to distinguish now between the two. This war feels different. There are different things about it. We have to do it. It's our responsibility. It is the ethical thing to do. But it is harder to make that argument now. Um, but I think to push back, that is what the Democratic Party is going to have to do. Um, say, yeah, the, it is wrong. The, the things we did before were wrong. And that's why we pulled out of Afghanistan. And that's why many of us were against Iraq and staying in Iraq. But this is why this is right. Um, there just needs to be a bit more of a pitch there. Yeah. Matt, um, last words to you on on this topic. I think, I think one of the important points... Um, about why why it's important to try and contain uh, the extremist uh, wing on, on either side is because what they say can be so easily weaponized against the majority, right? Against against the party, and we saw this with defund the police. Biden has now very vocally pushed back against that line, um, and he's done it not in word but also in deed with the with the with the DC uh, crime repeal. Um, so uh, I, I just want to get final thoughts from you on how mainstream Democratic Party um, can make sure that the vocal minority doesn't create the brand that persuadable voters associate with the party. And I, and I should give a shout out to your Lene Erickson and, and how uh, the, you know, the, the amazing work she's done on the student loan stuff, um, the Biden, Biden student loan bailout. So. Uh, indeed. Thank you for that shout out. And, and look, at Third Way, we spend a lot of time thinking about this exact problem, which is the very vocal far left uh, does and says things that make it very difficult for people running in swing districts to win. And one of the worst things they did was the defund the police thing. 
Um, that was particularly tricky for all the obvious reasons. It kind of bubbled up from the activist base. Uh, student loans was tricky because the president did it. You know, uh, it's a thing that we oppose, but but President Biden was was for, and uh, that does uh, cause real political issues. I don't think this one's going to be like either of those because the president has been super clear that this is a war that we need to be supporting. We we have to be all in in support of the Ukrainians against this barbaric uh, aggression on the part of the Russians. And really, no major politicians are joining the Eisenhower, Ben and Jerry people in their lunacy. So I, I don't worry that this is going to get out of control the way those other things did. Now that we've touched on some of the bigger stories this week, I want to spend some time looking at what you are watching um, above the radar, under the radar, <laughs> wherever it happens to fall. Beth, uh, what do you have for us? Um, well, mine is very much above the radar in France. I am watching the Macron pension reform debacle here. Right now we have um, two, 20 million pounds of trash in the street in Paris. Um, and people have been protesting every single night that fires being lit in the streets um, because uh, Macron is trying has just pushed through basically through an executive action, an increase in the retirement age um, by two years. So people, because he couldn't get it through parliament, thought he was going to lose the vote. He pushed it through with executive action and then he survived by like the slimmest margin, a vote of no confidence um, or his party did in the parliament. And so they're barely hanging on. And so this week, the big news here in France is that um, King Charles is coming. And while there's trash in the streets and people are worried about um, not getting their food and all this other stuff, they're going to be having a dinner, Macron and um, King Charles, at Versailles. So oh <laughs> that's oh something to watch. Oh, my. The optics. Oh, my. Yep. Are they okay. going to serve cake at that dinner? <laughs> I, you know, I'm sure they will. <laughs> <laughs> well played. Oh, okay. That's a, yeah, that's a good one. Um, quite brave of him, by the way. Quite brave. Um, yeah, all that's just, yeah, I mean, the, the optics are not great, but no. but I do think he is probably the most pragmatic president yeah. I've ever watched govern. Um, and it is interesting to see how it, how it's working out. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you can't help but think about our own social security, Medicare woes here in this country and how something like that would go over. <laughs> um, yeah. And, and sometimes although, you need somebody that's just willing to say, I'll lose it all. Yeah. <laughs> Fine. Yeah. <laughs> I'm going to yeah, make it happen. You, you do. And uh, we're, we're staring down the barrel of a very big crisis there, which we really haven't dealt with yet. But that's a topic for another day. Matt, what's what's on your radar? Well, Beth led with actual piles of trash. I'm going to go with metaphoric <laughs> pile of trash, which is okay. um, the, the effort by a group called No Labels to run a third-party candidate for president. This is something that we are deeply worried about because while it is, there is 0.0 chance that there uh, person, their their candidate could win the election or even win a single electoral vote. That is not going to happen. What they definitely could do is be a spoiler for Joe Biden. And we've done a lot of work on this. And it is very clear to us that not only are they targeting blue states where Biden could get hurt, but they're targeting Democratic voters. 
And if you think about the role that third-party candidates have played in modern elections, it doesn't take much. You could argue that Jill Stein, who no one had ever heard of, and Gary Johnson, who had no money, uh, may have actually cost Hillary Clinton the election. Uh, Ralph Nader certainly cost uh, Al Gore the election in 2000. He won 90,000 votes in Florida, a state that Gore, my my guy, lost by 557 votes. So a well-financed third party and, and no labels is trying to raise $70 million and is close is really dangerous. They're on the ballot in five states and counting. And, and it's something I'm really concerned about. This is, this is a really, I'm glad you mentioned this. It's a really big deal. Uh, it's very, very ill-informed. Uh, uh, I, and part of me wonders like they can't be that stupid, can they? Um, uh, and maybe they're not. They're not uh, stupid. Yeah, they're not. Yeah, but I know these people, and they are not stupid. They are they're quite smart, and they're very, very skilled at fundraising and at, and yeah. at organization. They've got hundreds of people collecting signatures, but they're going to do damage. I've talked with Lucy Caldwell about this, and just about no labels in general, and how you know, at, at it, during their earlier days, uh, I was hopeful uh, about how useful they could be, but uh, it. So much of what they do now just seems very, very uh, counterproductive. Uh, we'll we'll say toward the, um, you know, toward the ends. I think we're all hoping they would they would pursue. But so on our website, thirdway.org, on the the it's unmissable. There is a picture of Donald Trump standing at a no labels podium uh, because they gave him, believe it or not, in 2016, they gave him the problem solver seal of approval. Uh, which is almost beyond parody. Uh, but uh, we then lay out uh, exactly how damaging this could be and exactly why. Uh, they put out a map showing the states that they think they can win, which is laughable. Again, they're not going to win a single state, not one. Uh, but just to give you a sense of this, they think their candidate is going to win Delaware, Joe Biden's state of Delaware, uh, <laughs> among other states like Washington and New Jersey uh, that are very, very blue states. So it's a it's a complete like fantasy, but it is also extraordinarily dangerous because just to give you one example of this, in 2020, there were seven states decided by three points or less. Biden won six of them um, and needed basically all of them. So these very narrowly decided states have to break our way. And if they don't, Trump or whomever they nominate wins. And if there's a third party candidate on the ballot, that is very possible. Yeah. Um, problem solver or problem causer? Did they get it <laughs> exactly. backwards? Uh, okay. Uh, all right. I, I just have a quick thing to mention uh, to everybody who has watched The Last of Us or played the video game, The Last of Us. Uh, the CDC is warning of a drug-resistant fungus called Candida auris that is spreading in U.S. health facilities. Uh, the number of cases was 1,471 in 2021. Uh, it marked a tripling from 2019, and this fungus is dangerous to uh, medically fragile patients. So uh, I think we haven't heard the last of that story. Um, not saying that, you know, fungus-ridden zombies are on the horizon. However, <laughs> it is a little bit jarring. Uh, all right, gang, 
before we flip over to Politicology Plus, uh, where we're going to discuss what is a very DC insider story, but with much bigger implications, uh, and that is the the MAGA wing of the GOP buying up key real estate on Capitol Hill to create an alt-establishment. Where can everybody find you on the internet, Matt? Uh, I'm at thirdway.org and uh, on Twitter at thirdwaymattb. Oh, you brave man. You're still on Twitter. Good for you. Okay. <laughs> Beth? <laughs> also still on Twitter-ish, at Beth Fukumoto. Um, and civilbeat.org um, is where my weekly column is, and you can reach me there. All right. Terrific. And I'm on Twitter, reluctantly, still, at Ron Steslow. Thank you to everyone at home and on the go for listening. If you haven't yet, we'd appreciate it if you could open up the Apple Podcasts app and give us a five-star rating and review over there. This helps us rise in the rankings so that new people can discover politicology organically. If you have questions about anything we've talked about, you can reach us, as always, at podcast at politicology.com. And even when we can't respond, we do read everything you send us, whether it's an episode idea, a guest recommendation, or just a simple note about how the show has impacted you. And we love hearing from you. I'm Ron Steslow. I'll see you in the next episode.